You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Sonny, what's going on? You ready for another week and another episode here of Growing Up Rock? Yes, sir, I am. The weather here has been kind of crazy, but, uh, you know, we live through it. Yeah, it's a little cool down here in the south, too, but only for the day. It's been pretty crappy, but... Hey, we got a great interview coming up this week on uh, the podcast. I was able to spend a little bit of time and talk with Joel Hoekstra from Whitesnake and, of course, from about a million other things, be it Trans-Siberian Orchestra or Night Ranger or Cher or rock of ages or (laughs) i mean this guy this guy is a busy busy guy i mean you know what i was thinking when i was talking to him i was thinking you know this is kind of what a guitar superhero looks like these days and let me explain what i'm talking about so back in the day uh when we were growing up guitar heroes were kind of those guys like Page and Eddie Van Halen and George Lynch where they were with a band, they were coming up and they were kind of the guitar stars of the time. Whereas nowadays, because of music, what it is in the landscape, these guys that are guitar superheroes, they play in a million different things because they're so high in demand for their talents. And so I think that this is kind of what the guitar, the guitar gods look like these days. You know, does that make sense to you? Oh, totally. Uh, Doug Aldrich, Bumblefoot. I mean, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, and Doug, Doug Aldridge and Joel kind of remind me a lot of each other in the sense, not necessarily from a playing standpoint, but in the sense that, you know, they're kind of the higher guns, not to mention that Joel took, uh, took Doug's place in White Snake, but you know, they've traveled similar paths in terms of just playing with all these different people and, uh, you know, just are amazing guitar players in their own right. So Joel kind of fits that bill. And he was a really, really good guy to talk to, very humble and just has a lot of personal values that I think are very outstanding in someone, you know, really hard work ethic and positive individual. So uh, it's a really, really good interview. We get into a lot of stuff. You had a chance to listen to it. You agree? I totally agree. And I've, I've had a chance to meet Joel. So I uh, met him during a Night Ranger show at the Asparagus Festival in Stockton, California a couple of years ago. Right on. And I remember before Night Ranger got on stage, probably about 20 minutes beforehand, you know how there are steps to the side of the stage, right? So he is on one of the steps. He's got his guitar, and he's just basically practicing scales. That's all he's doing, just standing there practicing scales, looking out to, you know, a thousand people waiting out there staring at him. And he's just smiling and practicing scales. And then later on after the show, he signed something for my kids and wrote a little note to them about, you know, uh, keep music alive kind of thing. Yeah. So just a big smile, positive guy. And that kind of showed when I met him too. 
Yeah, and it shows he works hard at his craft, which came across in our conversation. I mean, that's a guy that works very, very hard at his craft. Not only is he a touring musician playing with all these various people throughout the year, but when he's home, he's working very hard on his craft in addition to being a parent and a husband. So, you know, he's got a, he's got a full slate, and then he takes time out to, uh, to talk to uh, us. So we are really appreciative of that. And uh, I think uh, the interview comes off great. Uh, So we're going to get into that in just a short few minutes here. But before we get into that. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. All right. So just like Samantha said, everybody's got a rock and roll story to tell and we want to hear yours. You can also subscribe to our podcast. We really appreciate it. But what we want to talk to you about here and now is the 2018 Rock and Pod 2 Expo coming up Saturday, August 25th at the Nashville Palace in Nashville, Tennessee. Sonny, this is a big deal. And I know that know that our listeners probably get tired of hearing this every episode, but we really, really need their help. So much to the point that Growing Up Rock has added a bunch of perks, which are going to be really, really cool for people if they want to get involved and help us out. Some of these perks for five bucks, five bucks, Sonny, that's it. You can donate five bucks to this and enter in a raffle to win prizes, okay? Some of the prizes are an autographed copy of Bob Kulik's Skeletons in the Closet CD. We were there. We got Bob to autograph it himself. I've got stage-used picks from Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons from the Animalized Tour. How cool of a little bit of a, a historical artifact is that? right? That's pretty cool. You would dig that. Yeah. I don't even have those. I mean, and I know they're authentic because guess what? I got them off the stage. <laughs> I was there. I could, I could prove it. Still have my animalized tour pass. A double XL prototype grown up rock black t-shirt. So we initially had 10 of these t-shirts printed up. I've got one. Sonny's got one. Jeff Scott Soto's got one. And now you can have one. And all you got to do is donate. You got the opportunity to win one of those. So that's pretty cool. You can donate 10 bucks and then you get to pick the crank it up spotlight for an episode. Okay, so you donate 10 bucks, you come on, you say, hey, this is a really cool band that I've been listening to. I want you to play it on the Crank It Up Spotlight, and we will play it, uh, and we will tell everybody that it's coming from you. You're the one that made the suggestion, and there you go. Uh, not only that, when you donate that 10 bucks, you know what else that gets you, Sonny? It gets you two other things. So you donate that 10 bucks, as long as you donate in the name of Grown Up Rock, you get to choose the Crank It Up Spotlight song of the week for an episode. You get VIP content, which is all the various podcasts that are involved in the uh, Rock and Pod 2 Expo are recording content. I did two secret episodes with a bunch of different podcasters in the past week that are going to be really, really cool episodes. 
Uh, and I don't want to give it away what it was about or anything like that, but I'm telling you, the listeners are going to dig it uh, because they came off great. So you get exclusive VIP content. And then if you come to Nashville for the Rock and Pod 2 Expo, that 10 bucks will get you in the door. How can you beat that? That's a pretty good deal. What are you going to do when Ian uh, donates 10 bucks and wants us to play Debbie Gibson? Dude, it's it's Ian's ten bucks. If that's what he wants to do, it's all about him. I I I would challenge somebody there to donate in the name of Ian for the Grown Up Rock Podcast and have us play Sammy Hagar. Oh, that! Oh, you started something there. I might do that. <laughs> so so so. I mean, can you picture it? This is a donation. For Grown Up Rock in the name of Ian Watley, and he would like us to play for the Crank It Up Spotlight, Sammy Hagar's Your Love is Driving Me Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, come on. There you go. Uh, I've started something. I'm sure that will backfire on me. But anyway... So, so for 25 bucks, you come on and you can, uh, again, the 25 bucks, pay the 25 bucks, that gets you in the door at the Nashville Rock and Pod 2 Expo. And I'm telling you right now, there have been some people that have not been announced for this thing that if they end up securing these people, you guys are going to be having like a holy shit moment. I can tell you that right now. But anyway, the 25 bucks, you come on, you record your own grown up rock story. So how you ended up getting into rock and roll? What were some of the bands that you really loved back in the day? We play a couple of tunes. We generally have a, a fun time for about 30 minutes. You have your own episode that we'll release. Not only that, you get the exclusive content because the $10 VIP, so you donated $25, so that gets you the $10 VIP exclusive content to all the stuff that's going to be coming out. And you get in the door at the, at the expo. How can you beat that? You can't. $50, you want to step up to $50, you can do exactly what we got going on with some episodes coming up where you come on, You record an episode of This Ain't No Disco where you pick the year and you pick the hard rock records that came out that year and 10 songs from those records that you want to play. Talk about that year. We talk about the rock and roll albums that you picked and the songs that you picked and we play. Uh, And that ends up being somewhere in the neighborhood of what would you say about hour and a half, two hour episode, Sonny? Oh, yeah, and that's a fun episode, too, because since you get to pick the songs you want to play, you'll hear our opinion about it, but you still get to play them. And then if you really want to step up, you donate 75 bucks, and you basically take over our show. So you come on with me and Sonny, you discuss a rock and roll topic that you're interested in, you help us pick some of the music that gets played and in addition we're going to send you that prototype double x grown-up rock black t-shirt which again there have only been 10 of those made we'll even throw in some cool stickers while, while we're at it so how can you beat it or any of those perks that you donate that will get you into the rock and pod if you make the trip to nashville and it will get you the ten dollar donation of vip audio access to the exclusive content So any of those donations will do that. The only one that will not do that is the $5 uh, raffle entry. 
for the prizes. So does that about cover it? I know that they've already announced Paul Taylor, uh, who is the original keyboard player slash guitar player and winger, Christopher Williams, who is the current drummer and Accept, and Gary Corbett, who is the keyboard player for Cinderella and Kiss and many other touring acts back in the day. So that's who they've announced so far. There will be many more announcements over the course of the months because, again, this is um, coming up August 25th. We've got to pay for this thing, but we've got to we've got to pay for it sooner than later. We can't wait till August to pay for it, right? Yeah, and uh, the perks, if you want to donate, it's www.gofundme.com forward slash rock and pod twenty eighteen. Uh, right now, we're about a third of the way there. The sooner, the better. And bunch of podcasts have different perks out there, so. You know, take a look at the website and, uh, you know, if you don't find something that you want to do with us, I'm sure you'll find something you want to do with somebody else. So not an issue. That's it. All right, Sonny, you ready to get into this uh, conversation with Joel Holkstra? Oh, yeah, this is I'm going to call him the youngster Joel Holkstra since he's younger than both of us. And, you know, it's interesting on a podcast, you don't get to see the faces and the poses. Go watch some YouTube video of Joel Hoekstra. He's got every rock star pose and face you'd ever want on an 80s guitarist. So he knows how to do his show, that's for sure. And this is a great interview. Enjoy. We'll see you guys next week. Later. Later. Hey, everybody. It's Joel Hoekstra of White Snake, and you're listening to the Growing Up Rock podcast with Sonny and Steven. Welcome to the show, Joe Hoekstra. I appreciate you spending a little bit of time in this, uh, what for you is sort of downtime. I mean, uh, it's kind of the calm before the storm for you because this summer brings you uh, on tour with Whitesnake and then you probably go straight into uh, TSO from that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the way it worked out, like the end of last year was a little bit of a flurry, just ending with Cher going into TSO. And then Cher started in January this year. So it was like I ended TSO. I went straight into that January and February. So I kind of took March and April to just kind of do a, you know, a couple little things to stay sane, you know, with the Rock of Ages band. And uh, now I'm here in Milwaukee with my buddy Brandon Gibbs doing some acoustic shows. And then then everything really heats up. I'm with Cher in May, then the White Snake tour with Foreigner and Jason Bonham in June and July. August and September are basically a mix of Cher and White Snake. And then, uh, as you said, I'll be in November and December, I'll have the TSO tour. So, got a really busy year. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's good. That's, that's how you pay the bills as a professional musician, right? Yeah, man. Busy is good. <laughs> good, good. Well, so one of the things I did is I sent Joel a request and I said, hey, Joel, would you do me a favor and send me like five songs that you played on, whether it was uh, Joel Hoekstra 13 or Night Ranger or White Snake, And you sent me right away. You sent me five back. You sent me uh, three off the 
Dying to Live CD, the Joel Hoekstra 13, and then the White Snake Purple album, right? And so what I want to do is kind of weave these songs in throughout our conversation as we talk today, and maybe have you give me a little bit of piece of information on why, if there was a particular reason you chose that song, and just kind of talk about the song. Sound good? Sounds good. Awesome. So with Grown Up Rock, we kind of like to start at the beginning of an artist's career and kind of dig into what makes them the artist they are today. And with you, music was kind of around your home when you were growing up early on because your parents were classical musicians. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So pretty much all the way from, you know, three years old, I was on cello. So there was always some kind of music happening. I mean, I wasn't very good. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't playing Bach. I was playing right. Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Right. You know, but, but nonetheless, I was working on music at that age and uh, piano when I was seven. And so growing up around that was helpful in terms of giving me a sense of pitch and sense of rhythm at an early age. And then uh, I heard ACDC and I decided that's what I want to do is play guitar and rock out like Angus Young. So that's what drew you towards guitar versus another instrument then? 100%. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember kind of what that gateway song or album was that bought you into that? It was ACDC, you said. So do you remember? Yeah, it was right around the time. It was a combination of Back in Black and For Those About to Rock. Like Back in Black had been out and For Those About to Rock, I think, was just coming out right about the time I started guitar. Yeah, you're roughly about five years younger than I am. So that's uh, I was a couple albums back and started with Highway to Hell. And so for you, yeah, that would have made perfect sense uh, right around the back and black. And for those about to rock time, let me ask you this. So music is around you during your growing up years. And I I call the growing up rock years kind of those teen years, because for me, really, my musical interest escalated when I hit high school. And I had all these friends around and everybody sharing music. And hey, did you hear this? No, did you hear this? Were you ever the type of kid that kind of did the whole, you know, waiting out backstage somewhere, trying to get your hero's autograph, that kind of thing, posters on the wall? Were you ever that kid? No, not really. I I remember two moments, though, that stick out with that. I went to, I think it was my grandparents' 50th anniversary or something like that, and so Everybody stayed at a hotel, and it turned out that Rush was there at the same time. They just played a concert. And so I got someone at the hotel to tell me what room Getty Lee was staying in, or they, they tipped me off to that. And I remember I knocked on Getty Lee's hotel door like late at night, and there was no answer, even though, even though I heard somebody was definitely in there. And, and then, of course, like a couple minutes later, somebody came walking out there, which I'm sure was probably the tour manager or security or something like that, you know, <laughs> I had to act inconspicuous like it wasn't me, you know, but I, I was hoping to meet Getty Lee, uh, which hasn't happened in my lifetime yet. But I did that at one point in time in my life, which is pretty embarrassing. And, uh, awesome. and then one other time I, I, I remember going to see Joe Satriani and I got there really early. And when he was done with soundcheck or something like that, he was at the bar slash restaurant next door. And I remember going in there and introducing myself and saying hi to him. But outside of that, not too embarrassing. Well, now, so it's interesting. You bring up Joe Satriani. So let me ask you this question because you're a GIT Hollywood guy, right? You went out to GIT uh, in Hollywood at, at one point in your life. 
I went out there in, I think it was 90, 91 for a year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, was there, was, cause he was a teacher at one point there, I think. No, I don't believe so. I mean, he might've done some seminars there, but I don't think Joe was on staff there. Okay. But uh, he's probably done some, I'm sure he's done some uh, clinics there and things like that. So, so when you were out there for that year, did you, were you uh, going to school with anybody of notoriety that ended up kind of making something of themselves and coming out of that uh, school? Yeah, my buddy Pete Thorne has done really well. Okay. He, we were in GIT together. He's played with Chris Cornell and Don Henley and, you know, you name it, all kinds of stuff. And uh, my friend Joy Basu, who did, you know, all kinds of big pop gigs. He was doing like the Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey and all that stuff back in the, the day. And uh, Scott Coogan was a drummer there when I went there. Yeah. And Scott's with Ace Freely these days and has had a lot of cool gigs and uh, so yeah, some of us have advanced on yeah. and done had good careers. Very cool. Do you happen to remember what the first rock album was you bought with your own money? You know, I know that I had for those about to rock and back in black, like right about the same time, and I can't remember honestly which one I got first. So I think that my friend, if I'm if memory serves me correctly, I bought for those about to rock and my friend bought back in black, but we were constantly swapping back and forth. It was like we'd take the cassettes and say, all right, here's the, you, you take this one for today. And, and we're listening to each other's cassettes, basically. But I was wearing those two out were the first two that really got me. And the first rock song that really hit me as cool was Billy Squire, The Stroke. I remember hearing, wow. like, my neighbor had it blasting on, like, his car or something while he was working <laughs> on it. And I went, you know, that's pretty cool. I was like, I think I like, I think I like rock stuff, you know? Like, I had up until then just kind of had the classical music thing and then only been really into like playing baseball when I was a kid. That was what I wanted to do was be a baseball player. And then the rock thing just kind of, you know, took over and, and I'm very much obsessive about stuff I do. So from then on that, that's basically been all, all it's been. That's awesome. I think, let me play this song off of Joel Hoekstra 13. This is uh, called Until I Left You with uh, Jeff Scott Soto singing. And uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about that in just a second.
We recently recorded a interview with Jeff Scott Soto. Jeff was awesome. He talked about all kinds of things. He's done so much amazing stuff, and his work on this song is pretty good. And this is a great song off of that Joe Hoekstra 13. Uh, what can you tell us about Until I Left You? I mean, that one went back a little bit. I had that song idea kicking around. But long before I did the album, and I was kind of hesitant to put it on that album, uh, especially because when I first got, the first people I kind of had involved were Vinnie Apice and Russell Allen, and I was kind of picturing a Dio on steroids thing. But as I uh, signed to Frontiers and uh, I wanted Jeff to sing some lead too on the album, kind of became clear as like some, you know, hookier, catchier, poppier stuff would go well. And uh, so I decided to include the song and see what happened. You know, I was like, I'll just have everybody record it and see if it'll happen because I didn't really picture it, you know, going down with that cast of characters. But it worked out well. I'm happy with the results. Yeah, it turned out great. I mean, the whole record is just a really, really good piece of work. Why the Joel Holkstra 13 as opposed to just putting your name on it? Because uh, I had three solo albums out already that were like instrumental guitar albums, uh-huh. and this this sounded more like a band to me. So I, I mean, I wrote the stuff not knowing if it was going to be a band or whatever. It was just like I just had decided I just want some straight ahead rock stuff, and I figure now that gives me an outlet to differentiate between the two. Like if it was a solo album, people would be expecting fancy guitar all over the place. And that's not what that album's about at all. I barely show off at all. I mean, I have all the songs have short guitar solos and I just wanted good rock songs and just put out like a cool rock album. That was more about the songwriting into things for me and, uh, you know, make it about the vocals. Like people like to listen to. So there you go. There's your explanation. Okay. Hey, fair enough. So I know that your connection with Russell Allen, uh, of course, the TSO thing, uh, you and Russell both do the East Coast touring group with um, TSO. Where did your relationship with Jeff start? We met at Melodic Rock Fest, the first one. Jeff played there with his band and I played with Scrap Metal. So that's where we first met. And then not too long after that, I got the TSO gig and we saw each other during rehearsals. Even though Jeff does the West Band and I do the East, you still spend a couple weeks together and you kind of collaborate on all the music and everything. So putting that show together. So I met him, uh, you know, at Melodic Rock Fest, but then we got to know each other really in TSO rehearsals. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, this year was the first year that I saw TSO and I was completely blown away. I saw uh, the East Coast version. So I got you and, and Russell Allen and it blew me away. I mean, just the production, the sound, the lighting, everything. I was like, okay, I've seen Kiss. I've seen, you know, some of the bigger shows in our time, but this thing is just massive. Yeah, they do a fantastic job. I mean, as a musician, it's all about are you willing to set aside a lot of your personal goals for the team? It's sort of like a sporting analogy, you know, because none none of us are ever going to be as big as Trans-Siberian Orchestra in it. You know, you're not going to be the star of the show, per se. But it's uh, for me, it's an honor to, to be in something with a production like that. And uh, so many of the guys now, because I'm heading into like, geez, this is going to be like, 
year nine for me of doing TSO. So, you know, we all become good friends through doing that. And they're very consistent about personnel. And so I enjoy all the people. I enjoy uh, being a part of that. And, And even the fans, because, you know, there's open signing lines and I've gotten to know so many of the fans. They've kind of become my friends through doing it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like you're having a great time up there. I mean, got to love you're up there and you're sporting your uh, black mat chucks. And it looks like you're just you're jamming away and having a great time. Yeah, man. I, the way I look at it is it, it's uh, few and far between the opportunity to go ahead and play your guitar, play music you like for 10,000 people a show and even two shows a day, you know, when you're getting on the bus at the end of the day, you can realize you played for 20,000 people playing rock music and having an opportunity to, uh, you know, get better yourself as a musician and build your career simultaneously and all with friends. There's so much to like about the gig. Yeah, I got to say, I'm going to make it a point to try and take my wife this year because I was so blown away and I think she'd really enjoy it because she's she's the opposite of me in terms of music. I mean, I'm the I'm the music freak. I'm the rock freak. I'm the one that listens to everything where she's kind of very nonchalant about her music. <laughs> she she yeah. likes music, but she's much more of a reader. Well, the TSO thing usually has something for everybody, I find, you know, especially the in more recent years. I think the show is still getting better and better, at least in my tenure. You know, I think the last two tours have been the strongest ones I've been a part of. So it's just getting better and better. Yeah, no doubt. So many great musicians on that thing, yourself included, obviously. But uh, Russell Allen does an amazing job singing. And I want to play this uh, song off uh, Joel Hulkster 13 called Anymore. And uh, Russell Allen is singing on this one. And we'll come back and talk about this in just a minute. This is Anymore from Joel Hulkster's 13.
All right, Joe, what can you tell us about anymore? How did that one come together? Uh, gosh, what to think about that? Well, I don't know. I just wanted like a straight-ahead rock song, you know, that had a catchy chorus. I tend to build chorus out when I write these songs, especially on that album. So, you know, I wrote the chorus, and then I was like, all right, now what would the verse be? And usually the melody of the chorus first, sometimes the lyrics, but then, you know, you kind of build out the explanation and the verses and things like that. But where to go beyond, I just wanted a solid kind of 80s-ish rock song. I, I couldn't tell you. Just a you know cool rock jam, and Russell sings his ass off. Boy, he does. He sure does. And did you write, because I know that you talked about uh, writing a lot of the lyrics on this record. Did you write all the lyrics or did these guys have uh, input on the lyrics, both Jeff and uh, I wrote Russell? all of them, man. I mean, Russell, Russ kind of worked on some of the stuff on the song Changes with me, which I don't, I don't know if we're going to play that on the podcast. I don't think so. But uh, Russell kind of tweaked the chorus on that and he wrote a verse melody and things like that so uh but you know 98 percent of all the lyrics and all the vocal melodies were all me on the whole album yeah and that's interesting because jeff scott soto after talking to him he's he's a very kind of hands-on guy or at least that's the way he came across to me so it's interesting to me that he didn't uh didn't want to write his own lyrics and you were able to write those for him but uh, they came across well in the in the record and on that song. I wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference if uh, he didn't. Well, write those. it's not that he didn't want to do it. It's just that they were written already, basically. You know, I had just worked so much quicker than everybody. I said, "Look, you know, here's I I have it all written, and here, you know, I sing those guys rough versions of what I would sing if I could sing as good as they can, and right they, they just interpret and make it better." Yeah, right on. So listen, things are going pretty well at one point. You're playing in Night Ranger. And I got to tell you, the two records, when you came into Night Ranger and you played on Somewhere in California and High Road, both of those records to me literally like injected life into Night Ranger. Uh, How much um, participation were you taking part in in that in the creations of those two records? There was a lot of being out there for like even the drum tracking on somewhere in California and kind of hanging out. I, I think I was there like a few weeks and uh tracking my guitars minimal input as far as writing you know and uh some of the stuff that i did get ideas for you know kind of went unrecognized but you know it was kind of like the only stuff that eric and i were really allowed to write on was stuff where we were all in the room together and you couldn't really bring in a completed song that was just yours, which is understandable. I mean, that that band is really, uh, you know, Jack, Brad, and Kelly after 30 years of building it up. So those things are what they are, but also just being truthful, you know. Uh, it's not like I don't totally understand where they're coming from. But as the new guy, you couldn't say, hey, man, I've got this whole song, lyrics, melodies, the whole thing, and, and you guys do no, this. Of course not. I, it just wouldn't happen, you know? And the same goes for Whitesnake, for that matter. I, I, I can't do that with David and say, I have a fully completed song, and here, sing this, David. You know, I mean, that's just not going right. to... The business doesn't work that way. But I would say active in terms of parts and production ideas and suggestions. Those guys were always cool with all that stuff. I, it was just like the energy happening in the band at that time, and it, and it was a resurgence. The band, uh, you know, I felt like when I came in in 2008... 
did not have as much energy as I think it generated over the course of me being a part of it. Although they're doing really well right now uh, with Carrie and everything. So I think Carrie provides the same thing for them, uh, a spark and energy. And uh, yeah, I mean, no complaints. I did feel what you're describing over the course of that time. And I assume it was probably just a matter of the White Snake gig being a better fit for you and maybe better money. I mean, in the end, you're still trying to earn a living. So, uh, because at some point, I mean, you just, you had to say goodbye to Night Ranger and move to White Snake. How did that all come about? Yeah, that just kind of came about by me putting out some feelers and then some people recommending me to David to kind of get his attention, like Phil Carton. Uh, most importantly, who manages Foreigner and D. Snyder. And, and so F- Phil had had me fill in for Mick Jones in 2011, and I had kind of gotten the set together on 24 hours notice and done that. And I think that opened his eyes. And so when the time came for me to call in a favor and say, hey, would you be willing to you know, contact David Coverdale and get me an audition? Phil did that for me. So but in terms of like why, you know, it had been seven great years with Night Ranger, but there was a lot of playing the same for the same people, playing the same dates in the U.S. And Whitesnake, obviously, there's a great history of guitar players through the band. So a lot of it is that cachet of, you know, being where uh, John Sykes and Steve Vai and Adrian Vandenberg, Vivian Campbell, you know, all these guys, all these great guys who have been through the band. You become sure. part of that legacy and working with Dave and working with Tommy Aldridge, who's obviously a historic figure himself. And there's an amazing catalog of songs in Whitesnake. And there's the I Get My Own Guitar Solo on stage with Whitesnake. There's a little more exposure in that department. And there's a little bit more international cachet. So like Whitesnake has a stronger following in Europe and South America and things like that. So that's opened up a lot of opportunities for me to make friends with people and get to those areas and build relationships. And so, you know, obviously, yeah, I mean, nothing, absolutely zero bad to say about my time in Night Ranger. But uh, the Whitesnake thing just provides all those things I just described. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you bring up some of those things because, I never really actually thought about your, I don't know whether you like the term or not, the hired gun term. It It is essentially, I mean, you're a great guitar player for hire. You play in bands, you play with Cher, you play on Broadway, you do all these various different things and a credit to your talent. But I never really thought about it the way that you just presented it, which is kind of expanding your own notoriety in different regions of the world and making these networking connections and meeting these people. And, you know, you, you don't know you're meeting business people and meeting, you know, the next person that might give you a record deal or something like that. I mean, it's, it makes a hundred percent perfect sense to me the way you present that. So that's, that's interesting. Thank you for that. Another thing I've kind of noticed is that, you know, you've done so much with Frontiers Record and Frontiers Records have done so much with a lot of the people that you work with. So uh, do a lot of these things that happen, whether it's the the Michael Sweet thing or your own record, do these things happen through the connections at uh, at Frontiers Records? Not necessarily, no. I mean, look, I love those guys. You know, Serafino's been really great to me, giving me the opportunity with the last record and obviously, you know, uh, signing the bands that I've been a part of. But no, not necessarily. It kind of happens just through 
building relationships through being out playing and just, you know, just trying to do my best with people. And I think a whole lot of that is just having a level of humility and, and, you know, keeping your ego in check and being good to work with, not being too precious with your own ideas, being willing to, you know, listen to others and work with them and help help them see their vision through as well. You know, you got to find a balance with that. It's, it's tricky at times, but the, uh, saying I've come up with is that when you're in a band, if there's five people, you should only truly have your way 20% of the time. Anything over that is just great, you know? So if yeah. it, it, you got just once in a while should be your, you're getting your way realistically in a band. So, um, I've had more luck than that, more than the 20%. So I'm doing really well. Right. Yeah. I gotta tell you, your guitar playing on Michael Sweet's one-sided war album is simply outstanding. Bottom line. How did you and Michael end up coming together? Yeah. So the Michael connection is, is funny. It's just been baby steps, you know, along the way. But I think the first time he reached out to me might have been when Night Ranger opened for Boston, when Michael was playing in Boston. And he said, you know, what a great job I did playing. And uh, I was like, thanks, man. You know, I'd love to keep in touch and, and would love to work with you someday on something. And I'm trying to think the next step we had. I think he finished a solo album and he needed somebody for the videos just to mime. And I went out and just was in his videos just for for fun. And we got to know each other out there doing that. And then I think uh, he had me up on his acoustic set at, on the Monsters of Rock cruise, and I played a couple songs with him there. And then from there, I think it might have been One Sided War, where he, you know, we we did a couple songs where I played on a couple of his songs, and obviously it was in the video for Radio, which is up. People can check out on YouTube and. And now, you know, we're discussing doing the whole, like, write, write an album together and release it together. So we've we just kind of been building a relationship slowly where we both really like each other and, and uh, got a good level of respect. And so hopefully that'll come to fruition. We'll see how that works out. Yeah, that's another dude that seems like he likes to work a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I, I like about him. He's a, he's a positive person who works really hard and, and is a talented individual. And that's kind of like my list of who I want to work with. And people say, you know, who do you want to work with? That's always my answer. It's not necessarily like, you know, the most famous person in the world or something like that. Right. Like, I want to work with, you know, I don't know, Lady Gaga, you know, it's not necessarily yeah. that. I, I'm just kind of like, I just want to work with talented people who I think are cool. And Michael certainly fits the bill. Well, and I think a big part of uh, what I'm hearing from you anyway, also is, is not only their great talent, but you're also looking for somebody that can in you know, uh, inject, uh, positivity. I think that that's what it sounds like is obviously that's a great thing. That's huge, man. The older I get, especially, you know, it's like, you just don't want negative energy weighing you down. So a whole lot of who I associate myself with or become my colleagues are people that focus on the positive, you know, and David Coverdale is really great with that. I mean, he's, uh, he's been a mentor of sorts of that. David's amazing at creating positive energy all the time. And, and then having positivity come towards you because of that, you know, he's, uh, he's remarkably good at that. Uh, I love it. I love it. I'm going to play this song called long for the days. Uh, and I have an opinion and a thought about this song and I'm going to share it with you right after, uh, we play this.
this lonely street Clouded eyes point to my feet And I don't know how or why this path was taken Memories of a time still near Only seem to increase the fear that I Safe place can only lie forsaken And if I ever saw it All I'd feel is pain There's no denying that I've lost my way Or that I'm crying every single
right, so that was Long for the Days. Russell Allen again taking over the lead vocals for that. That comes off of your solo record, Joe Hulkster's 13. And my thought when I heard this record or this song in particular is this could easily, in my opinion, be a White Snake tune. So any thought about presenting this to David? Because I can 100% hear David singing this song. I didn't. I mean, I had I had all that stuff written before I even joined Whitesnake, really. Sure. That album was in works during Night Ranger and during that transition time and everything like that. So, you know, I, it's funny. I took some flack about like, oh, well, of course he's going to try and release his own solo album. Now he's in Whitesnake and get, you know, I was like, <laughs> well, no, that was the plan from the beginning, man, you know. And uh, that's just the... The, what I want represented. No, I kind of looked at it like I wrote around the personnel, you know, and I looked at Russell Allen and I saw a guy that can sing anywhere from Lou Graham to Ronnie James Dio. Uh-huh. And so with the personnel I had with any apathy playing drums, obviously the Dio thing was a great fit. So there's some Dio-ish stuff on that record. And, you know, I also could see Vinny Apice playing like a foreigner song without it compromising his integrity or his cool factor. So, you know, I try to keep everything in there. That's why I describe that album as Dio-ish at its heaviest and foreigner-ish at its lightest. So this, that would certainly, I think, more of a foreigner influence than a white snake on there. But, you know, obviously there are similarities when it comes to a white snake ballad. Yeah, I mean, that song just, that screams that for me uh, when I listen to it. And you're getting ready to go out on the road with Whitesnake and Foreigner, which uh, I'm happy to say that I I bought my tickets. So I'm excited to see this tour because I saw Foreigner last year uh, with Jason Bonham and Cheap Trick. And Foreigner is just a, they're a solid band. I mean, Jeff Pilsen and Kelly Hansen, do an amazing job keeping that catalog going and it's uh it's it's as good as the music that music has ever been performed really i mean it's they're pretty remarkable in terms of execution you know it's a great lineup of musicians and they they play the stuff flawlessly live uh and i'm excited to see white snake i mean that's that's really why i bought the tickets because i haven't seen white snake in so long so i'm excited to see this tour yeah, I mean, all in all, it should be a cool night of music, right? You get to hear the Zeppelin stuff with Jason Bonham up there, then the White Snake hits, and then the Foreigner hits. So it should be a night of pretty much people in the audience knowing just about every song. And that's, you know, nowadays, that's a, that's a fun concert. Have you guys talked about or put a set list kind of together for this tour? We haven't, but I mean, I would anticipate, I guess don't guarantee it, but I would anticipate like you know, more of like a greatest hits kind of thing, because that's obviously what Foreigner is probably going to do. And, you know, I think it's billed under Jukebox Heroes Tour, right? So I think, you know, it's it's going to be probably music that people are the most familiar with. A lot of the package tours are kind of that, uh, which is, it's fine. I get it. I understand it. I'm kind of the minority concert goer, whereas I, I love to hear the deep tracks that you don't get all the time, but uh, I get it. I think there's going to be a couple in the White Snake set. I think that there's going to be, uh, you know, don't totally quote me on it, but I think there's going to be some in there that haven't been performed ever that David is, is keen on too. So we'll see. I got to, we got to totally hone the set list yet, but I know that's been thrown out there. So, so a couple of songs that have never been performed. So we'll see how that goes. 
Super cool, super cool. Looking forward to that. Let's play uh, something off the Purple album. Let's play Gypsy.
All right, so that was Gypsy from originally from the Stormbringer record, the Deep Purple Stormbringer record, which came out in 74. Uh, you played a lot on this song on the Purple album, so you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, that was, was just always one of our favorites to play when we were out on that tour. Of course, there's a new live DVD out that people can check out, uh, the Purple Tour, so they can hear hear us play it on there and then of course there's a video of it too with live footage like from the studio recording that people can look at on youtube as well uh the gypsy so it was just a kind of a favorite of the bands to play honestly more than anything yeah right on when you're kind of doing these share gigs and you're playing with share which must be sort of interesting for you is it difficult to kind of hold back and just play in the background versus just noodling endlessly and blowing people away or or what no it's a lot of fun actually i mean i i grew up kind of like right when i went to mi uh, the musicians institute out in la like when i was 19 years old pretty much when Nirvana came out, you know, and destroyed the whole guitar scene. So that was sort of where guitar players went to get discovered and make a career as a shredder back then. So that pretty much dropped like a nuclear bomb on that dream. And then I went through many years of just kind of like gigging, learning all kinds of different things to make a living at guitar and ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me. I mean, it turned me into a really well-rounded player. So I like to play a lot more than hard rock, and I have a lot more than hard rock in my bag, you know? This gives me an opportunity to prove to people that I can do, uh, you know, play down a gig and and hold it down professionally and not just be a quote-unquote shredder, which, you know, I I think I'm a lot more than that on guitar. In fact, I think there's a lot of people, there are a lot more people that shred, quote-unquote shred, way more than me these days, you know? It's not like... You know, the technique game has almost gotten out of control, but I just consider myself a musician who I kind of grew up through that era of having to learn how to play technically, you know, all the guitar heroes and stuff. But I love to play all the stuff I get to play on the share gig and not have to be visually entertaining. Like I can just practice, you know, be in the pocket and play with great musicians and, and lay it down. And then when I get to step out the few times I do with her, I'm stepping out with, uh, you know, a legendary uh, pop icon type of figure so that's a lot of fun and and her trust factor is really built up with me and it's become a lot of fun to kind of interact one-on-one with her out there when i'm playing guitar it's a it's just another feather in my cap professionally that i'm, I'm happy to be doing yeah and i think as a professional musician i think probably every gig it doesn't really matter whether you're playing with you know some big band swing time or or share or pop princess or whatever whatever you're playing I think it probably all comes with different challenges, so to speak. And I don't know if any of the challenges are, I won't say harder for you because I think you're so proficient at everything that you probably handle everything with a different degree. Is there any of them that maybe take you a little bit more time to practice or get down than the other? Is there any of them that pose different challenges to you that are more difficult than the other? Well, they always pose different challenges. I mean, it's even the share gig. It's people say, well, that must be so easy. And there are some songs that are really easy to play in that. Uh, But there's other stuff that goes with the choreography that requires, you know, there are unison runs with the dancers and things like that, that 
require a lot more memorization skills and, and musical skills than people would realize. So, you know, there's definitely just a, a, a focus of being mentally on when you do a gig, regardless of how difficult it is. And when it happens at an important level like that, you know, for thousands of people, you have to be on. And so my, my mental thing is always just constantly like play it as good as you can. That's where your mind is when you're on. So uh, the answer is no. And I mean, I, I say it's, it, they're all equally challenging, no matter what gig I'm doing, I want it to sound the very best I can. And that's always where my head is when I'm doing it. Of course, of course. Let me ask you, I, I find a little bit of interest in the whole rock of ages thing. You're doing this on Broadway, right? Well, I did it for six years. It was that it was off Broadway and on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I understand what goes down in a daily, like day to day situation for concerts and tours and things like that. But I have no idea about Broadway. So what what is that like? I mean, does your gear just set up and you just you walk into the place at, you know, five o'clock or something and they give you a costume and you go and you do it how does that how does that all work well i say this without an ounce of homophobia or hate in me but it's sort of like essentially take a rock band and make all the roadies gay men and then you have theater (laughs) it's sort of like you know you you have your hair and wardrobe people and it's you know it 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 was a lot of fun for me. I mean, the Rock of Ages thing, you do eight shows a week, yeah. and it's the, the same thing, identical. And it was a great opportunity for me, though, to play music that I liked with, with good musicians. All the guys in the band had big gigs and could play. But the best thing about it was that I could take off whenever I needed to to do other things. So it never compromised my touring at that time with Night Ranger or with Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and I was able to build my career. Because honestly, I mean, none of us, no guitar players uh, start out learning Black Sabbath riffs going, someday I'm going to be in a Broadway show. (laughs) It it was the best thing ever happened to me, really, in a lot of ways. Financially, it changed my whole life because, I mean, I had six years of having a base foundation of no matter what, the day I was home, I had a paying gig. So it basically gave me a gig every day for six years. So it was a really great experience. In terms of what it's like, I mean, you've seen the movie Groundhog Day, right? Yeah. With Bill Murray. Yep. That's sort of what playing a Broadway show is like. Because when you're doing eight of them a week, I figure by the time I was done with Rock of Ages, I think we did something like 23 or 2400 performances or something like that. And I figure I probably played about 1600 of them, maybe something like that. So if you think about doing the same thing 1600 times, like an entire show. Uh, it's an awful lot. You know, you've, you've played it so much that you're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, you're almost a little bit crazy and like how Bill Murray would make his slight changes and how he would approach each day. That's sort of what you have to do to keep yourself sane. Cause you know, which oddly enough, he woke up every day to, I got you babe. Right. The yeah, show song. Right on. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's sort of what it's like, man. T- does she do that live? The I Got You, does she end up doing that in their yeah, live show? Yeah, yeah, there's a video screen of Sonny that comes down okay. and she sings the duet. And it, it's pretty neat because in that moment, I'm only like a, a few feet from her when she's singing that. And that there is a, a moment there for me every night of going, you know, this is pretty cool. Like these are, <laughs> so it's a pretty historic thing that she's a song and she's singing with this, you know, video screen of a guy who's departed and, and I'm standing there kind of in view of the audience playing it so it's neat yeah you've definitely seen and and been able to take part in some pretty cool uh uh scenarios i think uh which 
you should be proud of, and you should be able to look back on those uh, years from now and and say, yeah, I remember that. That was pretty damn cool. I have no doubt about that. New white snake record. Is there a new white snake record? Is it done? When will it see the light of day? And how much did you take part in it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, in short. So it was supposed to come out this spring, but David unfortunately had a bout with a uh, really bad flu that set us back a little bit. So it's coming out in September. Uh, but however, the initial single, the first single is getting released like a video, I believe at the end of May, somewhere around there, right before we're out with Foreigner. Yeah. And they'll release some singles uh, leading up to the September release of the record, but it's called Flesh and Blood. And David, David basically did the majority of the right. I mean, he'd have like song ideas and with Whitesnake, David writes all the lyrics and melodies. So you can contribute guitar riffs and musical sections, musical beds. Um, but that's pretty much as far as it goes. But I did that on, I'd say eight or nine songs. So I've got quite a bit of co-writes in terms of, you know, awesome. technically contributing to the music. Although, like I say, I wouldn't, none of them would I label like, this is my song. You know, there's some where sure. I wrote all of the riffs to them. Uh, but then David would write the lyrics and the melodies. And that obviously becomes more identifiable as what the song is than my guitar playing behind it. And I just actually came from there because I think, you know, Reb and David are kind of getting tired ears out there listening to the mixes. So uh, they had me out to help a little bit with that, which was cool and get some production ideas in. And David's, you know, more than gracious with all that stuff in terms of being accepting of my ideas and, and giving them a shot. So, you know, in that regard, I've had some input. It's hard to, you know, say is a, what's a lot of input and what isn't, you know, on the spectrum of going from Joel Hoekstra's 13, where I wrote all the lyrics and all the melodies and was totally in charge of all the production end of things. Uh, you know, and I don't nearly have as much to do with it with Whitesnake with this new album. But that being said, I think David's been more than generous. So uh depends how you're going to rate it. All those things are relative, right? Right. Yeah, it's all it's all everybody's got their own opinion. It's what you like. Do you have a opinion of the record in terms of I mean is it a pretty standard fare for White Snake or is there something some surprises is it a heavier record uh well, here's the thing with that is there's like 18 songs. I think we did 18 or 19 songs. So it's too much. So some of it still depends on how they, what songs David's going to pick and how he's going to sequence the record. But yeah. in the 18, 19 songs, there's, there's something there for everybody. You know, the sure. initial uh, White Snake fans, which is kind of more of the UK fan base who want to hear David sing like, you know, it's more straight ahead bluesy rock rather than the shreddy kind of thing, 80s-ish kind of thing. There's there's some stuff on there like that that's more R&B-based. And uh, certainly some stuff that reflects the Geffen era, like the Slide It In, 87, yep. Flip of the Tongue kind of sound. And then there's uh, there's also some stuff on there that sort of reflects the good to be bad forevermore Doug Aldrich era, you know? Right. So it's kind of a hybrid of all of that stuff. And it depends what David picks for the record, but it's all kind of there in theory. Right. You've done a ton of different things. Has there ever been a gig that you've either tried out for or wish you had tried out for that you got an invitation to do that you didn't end up getting for whatever reason because, you know, it just wasn't right at the time or the chemistry was wrong or whatever the situation, not necessarily your playing? 
No, not really. I mean, it didn't. The the filling in for Mick Jones thing in 2011 kind of fits that bill because I could have continued on really with him, but at that time, I think the Night Ranger guys deemed that not acceptable to have me playing both bands on that tour. Right. So that would be the only example I could give you of that, where I probably could have continued on with Foreigner at that time, but that was kind of uh, put an end to. Um, But no, not really, man. I mean, the most part, anything that's happened uh, has worked out well. And I can't really think of any scenario where I regret anything. It's everything's worked out really well. I mean, I just try and have a daily philosophy of working hard anyway. I mean, at the end of the day, had I ended up in full time with Foreigner back then, I don't know if I'd have the diversity I have in my my current scenario, which I love. You know, yeah, uh, I love I love all the things we talked about with White Snake, all the things that I'm able to have on that gig in terms of being a guitar hero and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I love the you know professionalism and the the pop thing with the share thing and being able to play Trans Siberian Orchestra and have that enormous production and be able to, you know, set up gigs with, uh, you know, like I'm doing right now with Brandon Gibbs, just acoustic shows, which are more or less for fun, but kind of intimate and small. And, you know, all that stuff makes me a better player having the diversity there. And that's what I'm interested in too, is improving. So no regrets on all that stuff to be with one band that would occupy my time. It would, would be great, I guess, but I also really enjoy doing all of the variety of things I'm able to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, makes perfect sense to me. Is there a current band or artist out there today that they gave you the invite? It would, uh, cause you to drop everything and do this with them. Not really. I mean, I, I'd like to play music on a high level, you know, um, so it's not surprisingly not as much about the, how much I show off on guitar as people think. It's uh, more about playing with people who I think are talented and positive people and playing on a high level. So if like the band around me is smoking and the songs are smoking, I'd happily play GCD all night long, you know, yeah. rather than, you know, fancy solos, whatever, whatever, just to, you know, enjoy. Uh, I do enjoy being a part of good music being made. I got I got the perfect scenario for you. So Angus Young comes to you and says, "Hey Joel, um, uh, Stevie Young can't play anymore. You want to be the rhythm guitar player in ACDC for the next ten years? What do you do?" <laughs> oh, I, well, I'd be there in a second, but I think I'm uh, about three feet taller than everybody in that band. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that would fly, but uh, yeah, definitely, of course, man. I love ACDC. Yeah. That would be amazing to do something like that and play at that kind of level. You know, I don't think that would be my gig. I don't think I would ever get that call, but sure. You know, you 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 are a tall guy. How tall are you? I'm six three. Yeah, you you got a couple of inches even on me. I'm six one. But every video I see, I see uh, you're in the what I call the rock star pose, which is the legs spread apart with the guitar hoisted, and and uh, you can tell that there's some length there. So cool, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that that was sort of out of uh, necessity, I think, to look like I'm uh, in the same band. Also, sometimes we'll set my microphone a little bit further downstage than uh, than everybody else's, so I look further back or <laughs> upstage. I guess I should be saying, right? Yeah. That's upstage, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we've set my microphone a little bit further back. So if you're in the back of the house and you see the guys lined up at, uh, like across the stage, I don't look like, you know, the thing that ate the band or anything like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right on. 
Well, hey, you've been awesome, and I don't want to take up a ton more of your time, but I want to know if uh, if we can have a little fun here before we let you go, and we'll do a little quick lightning round, which is how we like to kind of finish these episodes. You in? Sure, bro. All right, cool. So, uh, song you wish you wrote. How about, uh, I'll go with Stairway to Heaven. That's kind of a really kind of comprehensive, cool rock song. You'd be making a lot of residuals, that's for sure. Favorite song to play live? Band or artist you want to see live in 2018? I'm, I, I'd be interested in seeing my, my buddy Bumblefoot and, and Jeff Scott Soto, uh, you know, play with uh, Sons of Apollo. How about that? That's good. It's real good. Uh, name two Desert Island albums. So two albums you take to a desert island with you. Uh, ACDC Back in Black and The Eagles' Greatest Hits. Oh, I ain't mad about those two. That's good choices. Best concert you ever attended? Probably the first one I went to go see Iron Maiden Peace of Mind tour. And I was, I think, just in seventh grade. So it's impossible to, to be better than that. It was so amazing at the time. Oh, no doubt. Uh, Do you remember who opened for that show? Quiet Riot. Ah, that's an interesting bill. <laughs> All right. They had just broke. So it made sense at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, technically Quiet Riot is the first band I saw live. Yeah. But Iron, you know, I was, I went to go see Iron Maiden. Cool. Uh, last record you purchased. I, I couldn't even tell you, man. I only buy music that I have to learn. Yeah, I tell you. You download Honestly, it. Yeah. Yeah. So like if there's, you know, songs I have to get on top of, I'll 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 buy it off of iTunes. But that's it. It's only out of necessity. Yeah. Are you a downloader or a streamer? Download. Yeah. Uh Angus Young, Randy Rhodes, or Eddie Van Halen? Angus Young. Zeppelin or the Beatles? Zeppelin. You sing in the shower or the car? Uh the car. And what are you singing? Uh Anything I like. <laughs> All right, Joel, that's it. Your lightning round is done, man. Good job. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Thanks, man. Hey, uh, what else do we want to plug here before we let you go? Uh, because you're a busy guy. I know you'll be out there on the road with White Snake in the summer. You're doing Share in May and then on to TSO. What does TSO run? November and December? November, December. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I mean, I think we pretty much covered it all. It's all good. Yeah, we'll plug all of, uh, like, we'll plug the links to your music in our show notes and to White Snake tour dates and to to everything else that is Joe Holkstra. Uh, we'll cool. make sure we cover everything uh, with awesome. you. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Just send me the links and I'll I'll get everything up. That would be wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
pain that you just can't deny. You are the cause overflowing with flaws and you best not forget till you Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock.